So I'm really excited this morning because this is my Sunday morning debut. I've never gotten to speak on a Sunday morning before, and I'm just so humbled to be here. Um, I spoke at Saturday Night Church in February, and before I went up, I checked my heart rate. I've got this nice watch that does that for me. It was 189 beats per minute. (laughs) I was so nervous. And last night, I checked my heart rate before I went up, and it was only 71. I was like, wow, I'm feeling pretty good. This morning, I checked it while Yasmin was talking, and it was 138 beats per minute, so I'll let you do the math about how nervous I am, but um, I'm still confident that God is going to give us a good word this morning, because it's not just from me, it's also from the Holy Spirit who has been working in my life, so I trust that there's something universal in there for everyone. I want to ask you this morning, if you've ever had a word that kind of just one day appears, but it's like you forgot what it was, you forgot what it meant. It was maybe part of your vocabulary, but you hadn't used it in a while. And then suddenly you hear it and you're like, oh yeah, you know, I kind of forgot about that word. I forgot about what it means. Or sometimes you just, you learn a new word that you never knew before, and then suddenly you start seeing it everywhere, and you're like, how the heck did I go so long without knowing this word? Because apparently it's everywhere. Um, and I love it when that happens because it's, you know, something new I didn't know before. I love to uh, learn new things, and it feels like God is taking me somewhere new, and I'm like, yes, my life is moving forward. Things are good. Um, and about four months ago, that word for me was enjoyment. And to give you some context here, uh, we were working from home about four months ago. We had been working uh, from home for a number of weeks, and uh, it was just really devastating on my mental health. I've struggled with depression my whole life, but um, you know, I thought I was doing really good, and then the weeks kind of went by, and before I knew it, I was back in this place I thought I had overcome. I really depend on my routines. I depend on getting out of the house. I depend on church. I depend on participating in church. You know, I was commenting online every week as the neighborhood church, which was fine, but it prevented me from actually, you know, engaging in worship and, you know, I had to make sure everything was okay. And it was still so new, so I was like having heart palpitations every week. I was like, oh my gosh, is it going to fail? Is the premier going to fail? Because sometimes that happened. Like, there was just, I was concerned about everything and wasn't uh, in any kind of healthy routine. And the other thing that kind of hit me was that we were all kind of disconnected from each other and, um, kind of one half of us and, you know, one half of the world seemed to be taking the pandemic really seriously, and the other half were calling it plandemic, and, you know, on social media we were kind of just like all fighting each other, and that was really hard on me. It was kind of exhausting to watch. It didn't seem like there was a lot of unity there, Um, and I don't just mean in our church, I just kind of mean globally, and uh, nobody really seemed happy Um, about what was happening, but everyone seemed to have expectations about how church should go. And I don't mean just church people, I mean as staff as well, we all kind of had these different ideas and expectations, but we were all learning new things, and I was just, like, I was drowning. Um, And I remember thinking back in May, so weeks had gone by, and I'm kind of in this unhealthy mental space, and I remember thinking, I'm like, when was the last time I actually enjoyed my life? Like, actually consciously enjoyed it? You know, is there even any hope for me to enjoy my life anymore? Like, is this just going to be what it is because like I can't do it. Um, and you might look at me right now and, and think like, oh, she's a happy, healthy young woman. How could she possibly struggle so much? But the thing about mental health is that it doesn't discriminate. Like I'm wearing contact lenses right now. Half of you are wearing glasses. Like you don't, you didn't plan to be born needing glasses. I didn't plan to be born with mental illness, but it's just kind of what happens in life. It's the same with physical diseases. You don't plan to get it, but it kind of happens. And it's the same with mental health. It just, it doesn't discriminate. 
and my mind was very much at war with itself, and I was very depressed and unhealthy. But this all started to change for me uh, in May, one night on Wednesday. We had Zoom prayer meetings on Wednesday, and I was making a habit of going to them each week. Um, and so I just, I just felt like I should go, but I felt like I was really struggling, and so I kind of like determined for myself, like, Alyssa, you're going to go, but you're not going to say anything. Nobody's going to know anything. Everyone's going to think everything is fine, and you're going to go, and you're not going to say one word, which worked for like the first half an hour or 45 minutes until I felt the Holy Spirit nudge me and just say, like, Alyssa, you need to say something. And it was the biggest kind of prompting from the Holy Spirit that I'd felt in a long time, like probably since I'd spoken in February at church. And so I was like, okay, I need to pay attention to this. And so when you're like me and you're used to hearing from God all the time and used to having this relationship and it's kind of just gone, it's a really big shock to go without it. So felt the prompting, knew I needed to act on it. And so I confessed to everyone on Zoom what I'd been experiencing. I confessed that I felt a lot of shame, that I'd backslidden into depression. Like after years, what felt like what felt like victory. Um, you know, I'd done a lot of overcoming in Bible college and, you know, I'd thought I was, like, good with my boundaries and systems and, you know, just thought I'd overcome stuff and thought I'd overcome stuff that was, like, permanent. You know, I thought that that wouldn't be taken away. Um, and it just, it felt really dangerous. So I said I was scared. I was scared to be alone. I didn't feel in control. I felt like God had taken away my victory. And my brain was telling me that I was just too tired to exist anymore. And I was prepared for this confession to result in backlash and, you know, for people to say, like, Alyssa, are you sure you should be in ministry? Like, if you're in ministry, you shouldn't be struggling with this. And people have said that to me before. And uh, I was just ready to hear the words, but I was, like, so just broken down that I was like, I don't even care what the backlash is going to be because I just need something. Um, but that's not what happened, um, thankfully, because our church is filled with good and godly people. And I just was dumbfounded as on Zoom one by one, people stopped praying. You know, on Zoom, we have just a list of topics we pray for, and everyone just kind of stopped and just started praying for me. So Pastor John stopped and prayed for me, and Pastor uh, Barry and Stella stopped and prayed for me, and Thomas Harris prayed for me, Noza prayed for me, Roger Yankins prayed for me, and there was, I'm sure I'm missing people, but it was just like this, like there's actually quite a few people on Zoom that night, which is like normally there's like four or five, and there was like a lot more than that that night. And I was like, of course, the night I'm going to say something. There's lots of people here. But it was actually really incredible because in that moment, even though um, kind of the emotional aspect of it didn't change, I still kind of felt really heavy, still felt like my mind was at war with itself. I felt in that moment that the church had done something spiritually significant for me that would not have been possible otherwise. And it was only because I was part of the church, part of God's purposes and kingdom, that I was able to experience this. And so emotionally, I wasn't there yet, but like logically, I was like, something important happened here tonight. So come to prayer, people. It's good for you. And it was a moment that prepared me to go forward. So let's fast forward a few weeks into June, and uh, I have a class called Old Testament Wisdom Literature. Some of you probably know this, but I'm a master's student at Briarcrest Seminary. So I was in this class, think like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Job and Song of Songs and, you know, that kind of thing, exploring wisdom literature books and themes in the Bible. Um, and it was being taught by one of my favorite professors, so I was really excited and motivated to do well, but I was still struggling. And I handed in my pre-course work very, very late, way too late, didn't do that good of a job. I kind of enjoyed our class discussions, you know, it was good, it's interesting. Um, and I read all the wisdom literature books, but um, I still like felt very dead inside and I was just like, God, why? Like, 
this is your living word, like shouldn't this be like piercing my metaphorical bone and marrow, like why isn't this making me alive, like I'm also experiencing this in community with others, which is like really good, and I just still felt very dead. But the thing I want to really make clear is that sometimes when you're going through seasons like what I'm describing, is it's preparing ground for you to experience something. You might not have a big moment each time, but um, just like filling yourself with the word of God and filling yourself with like godly community, like you might not feel it, but it's preparing ground for God to do something. And that's what this was. And the week was really hard for me. I had two anxiety attacks that week because I was underperforming. I was worried about work and I couldn't bring myself to do anything about it. So it was just a gong show. But then I had a conversation with my professor after class ended on the Thursday. So the module goes from Monday to Friday. It's Thursday, I just finished my you know, second last day of class and I was really embarrassed to talk to him. I was talking to him because I wanted to do the end of uh, week exam a day early because I wanted to get back to the church on the Friday to edit our online service video and I was feeling really stressed and um, I was embarrassed to talk to him because I still hadn't had handed in my pre-course work and so that's always embarrassing you know when you're talking to your professor I'm like I know I have stuff to hand into you but like I just can't do it and so I was just really prepared for him to say something I was like you know this is gonna be horrible he's gonna say something you're gonna disappoint one of your favorite professors but he just looked at me and he said, hey, A2, that's his nickname for me, Alyssa Andrews, A2, how are you? And I was just like, oh, it's been really hard. <laughs> and I just like started crying. And uh, he just said, like, what's going on? And no chastisement, no punishment, just tons and tons of grace. And um, he just said, you know, Alyssa, it sounds like you needed this week to get back to your first love. And uh, I got really emotional when he said that because one of the prominent uh, themes in wisdom literature is God's divine absence. So you think of Genesis and books like Kings and God's very active and he's saying something and he's appearing. Um, but in wisdom literature, it's not quite like that. He's kind of in the background. But the thing with wisdom literature is God is absent in the presence of suffering. And that's what really stuck out to me because I felt like I was really suffering in my mind. Um, and God just wasn't there. Like where I once had talked to God and heard him talk back, I was experiencing radio silence. Um, and I was just, I was too tired. I couldn't even muster up the strength to like be angry at God about it. I was just like, you know what, I'm just not gonna do this. But as my prof said this, that I needed to get back to my first love, I felt how true it was. Because the thing about my pain and, and kind of my endurance even, you know, trying to be Christian, trying to be a good Christian, trying to be a good church worker, trying to do everything I need to do while I feel like I can't do it, while my brain is telling me I can't do it, while my brain is telling me all sorts of lies, and pumping out results just so that nobody can know that anything is wrong, and it means nothing if I don't love God first if Jesus is not my first love. And that's a biblical principle found in Revelation 2 where Jesus is talking to a church in Ephesus and says, you know, you've done a lot of good stuff. You hate evil. You've done good work, but you've left me. And I felt how true that was for me. Not that I intentionally, nobody intentionally just wakes up one morning usually and says, you know, I'm just not going to love Jesus today. It's kind of this gradual, gradual thing. So if you have your Bible... I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes with me and like 10 points to everyone who brought their hard copy uh, just because, you know, good for you. If you have your electronic copy, turn there too, but um, I have a special appreciation for the hard copy. Um, and so we're going to take a look at Ecclesiastes and just like what God taught me about enjoying life because like I'm not just this Debbie Downer. Um, there's actually stuff to be enjoyed and this is what God brought me out of into. So yeah hop over to Ecclesiastes. 
And first things first, like enjoyment means something. It doesn't mean this overly complicated, rejoicing religious experience. It actually just means to take pleasure or delight in something or to possess benefits from something. So enjoying God means taking delight or pleasure in him and to enjoy and possess the benefits of God. And you may recognize Ecclesiastes as that book of the Bible that you hear at weddings, you know, a cord of three strands is not easily broken, so, you know, God, husband, wife. Or you might recognize it by its famous stanza, there's a time for everything, time to be born and a time to die. Or you might recognize it even more famously for its kind of bleak outlook on life. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. And I just, like, I just love it because, like, in Genesis, you have God, like, breathing creation into existence, and then you have, like, the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament, and then kind of in the middle, you're like, life is meaningless, and it's just fun. I love the Bible. And so a bit of context on Ecclesiastes. It was written by Kohelet. Kohelet is a son of David. He's the preacher, teacher in your translations. He's an heir to the throne of Israel, but he's likely writing this during a post-exilic time period. So think, you know, uh, after Babylon, Israel has been released from Babylon. There's no monarchy. There's, Israel doesn't really have anything. They're kind of going through an identity crisis. And yeah, just there's no throne for Kohelet to inherit, but he describes himself as this son of David, heir to the throne in Jerusalem. And so as I was reading through Ecclesiastes, I was touched by the fact that Kohelet kind of just seemed as depressed as I was. Um, But it's actually not that. He's not depressed. He just understands life for what it is. And Kohelet says, life is meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or some of your translations might say everything is vanity or everything is absurdity. Uh, but what he's actually saying here, this word meaningless, is the Hebrew word habel. And habel is more closely translated to vapor or breath. And it has a lot of nuanced meaning that we kind of lose in English, which is why translators struggle to find an appropriate word there. Habel means vapor in the fleeting sense. It's over very quickly. It's used metaphorically in Ecclesiastes to describe things as incomprehensible, futile, meaningless, false, transitory, insubstantial. It's just it's something that can't be grasped, and it's something that's over very quickly. And uh, it's the opposite of the Hebrew word ruach, which you might remember means, you know, spirit. It's God's spirit. It's wind. It's hovering over the deep in Genesis. It's this life-giving and animating force. That's what ruach is. And Hebel, but going back, Ruach also means breath. So it's this breath that's life-giving and life-animating. Hebel is breath. It's vapor. It's temporary. It's not life-giving. It's actually uh, insubstantial, and it's not, you can't grasp it. So it's just this interesting contrast in Ecclesiastes, like where in lots of the Bible you have God's life-animating force. Life is not God's animating force. It's actually vapor. It's breath. It's futile. It's meaningless. It's false. It's transitory. It's insubstantial. So they both have breath connotations, but it's just this interesting contrast that I thought you might like to know. And actually, Habel too, this is also interesting, not really part of my sermon, but want you to know this as well. False gods, lots of authors in the Hebrew Bible use Habel to describe false gods. So if you were like reading in Hebrew, you'd understand like blah, 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 false gods, Habel. People in Hebrew would know that they're worthless, they're not real, they're actually just... um, fake. So we don't really get that in English, but I thought that you might want to know that. Just something to bolster your reading. So when Kohelet opens Ecclesiastes, he's telling people that life is just a breath. It's as solid and long-lasting as the fog that escapes your breath in winter. It's insubstantial, it's futile, it's frustrating, 
and it's meaningless. Because to Kohelet, we all end up at death's doorstep one day, and he laments in Ecclesiastes over all the ways that life is like chasing the wind. Only God's purposes stand true, because if you chase the wind, you end up with nothing, because Israel chased the wind. They chased those worthless false gods, those things that aren't real, and they lost their monarchy. So you chase the wind, you end up with nothing, like Israel now had nothing. But what I learned throughout this class is that there's actually an underlying theme of enjoyment. So just imagine Kohelet, he's an heir to a throne that doesn't exist anymore, and he's still telling us that life is worth living. It's got stuff to be enjoyed, and it permeates the whole book. Um, This enjoyment of God is specifically the good purpose and gift of God that humanity should enjoy their life despite Habel. And enjoyment doesn't have a lot of explicit references compared to Habel, but the undertones are everywhere. Enjoyment stands out as this gift of hope in the midst of nothingness. And some scholars, as you read, will try to polarize this and say, you know, Kohelet, this author, the preacher teacher, he's a pessimist. And then on the flip side, you'll have others who say, no, he's actually an optimist. And I'm here to tell you that he's neither. What Kohelet is teaching us is that there is no true enjoyment of life without the physical and emotional perception of Habel. That's what I was struggling with. This habel, this like over COVID, this unhealthy depression, it's, it's just without God's purposes, my life is nothing. And, and I lost sight of God's purposes. I lost sight of my first love. And I lost sight, therefore, of enjoyment, of enjoying my life. So this is what I'm saying. You can only enjoy life truly the way God has intended you to enjoy it by understanding the reality of life as habel. And you might see people outside of church and who aren't Christians, who don't know God, and you're like, wow, they actually seem to be really enjoying their life. And, you know, they might be because God gives good things to all people. But there is really no true joy outside of this perception because their joy is an illusion. It's a fool's happiness because it's also habel. It doesn't add up to anything. It's vapor, it's breath, it's fleeting, and it's over very quickly. So this was my big aha moment where my soul came out of darkness and kind of just stepped into light again and where I came back to my first love because I understood as I read Ecclesiastes that enjoying life doesn't mean ignoring my pain. That's what I've always done. It's like, okay, you know what? I've got a lot going on, but I'm just going to be happy. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to see people so I'm not going to, you know, experience what I should be experiencing. I'm just going to be happy because, you know what? Nobody needs that all over them. You know, I just want, I don't want to be a burden to people. Nobody wants to be a burden. But enjoying life does not mean diminishing your own pain. It actually means leaning into it. And it doesn't mean ignoring the cruel realities of this world. You don't have to scroll very far on Facebook to find something worth crying over because there's so much injustice. But it's, uh, it's just wrestling and understanding and leaning into this reality of Habel, that life is nothing without God's purposes, that we can actually move forward into enjoying our life. Because for me, it was always this dichotomy. I have to ignore my pain because I have to have the joy of the Lord. It's not true. So how do we enjoy life? I've got some verses to share with you. We're going to power through them. I'm going to read them very quickly. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25. So I decided that there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? Enjoyment is from God. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 to 13. So I concluded that there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. Ecclesiastes 3.22, so I saw that there is nothing better for people than to be happy in their work. That is our lot in life. 
and no one can bring us back to see what happens after we die. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 20. Even so, I have noticed one thing, at least, that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying their life they have no time to brood over the past. Ecclesiastes 8.15. So I recommend having fun. The NRSV says, so I commend enjoyment. I think that's really interesting. Because there is nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way, they will experience some happiness along with all the hard work God gives them under the sun. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 to 9. So go ahead, eat your food with joy, drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne, unless you're at the neighborhood church because we're sent free, and live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. That's right. Ethan shouts a hearty amen. Wives, I think it's fair to put spouse in there as well, so you still have to enjoy your husband. Ecclesiastes 11, 7 to 10. Light is sweet. How pleasant to see a new day dawning. When people live to be very old, let them rejoice in every day of life. But let them also remember there will be many dark days. Everything still to come is meaningless. Young people, it's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. So refuse to worry and keep your body healthy. But remember that youth with a whole life before you is meaningless. And so I know the word meaningless is, you know, being thrown around a lot, and I don't want to depress you. You know, we hold Ecclesiastes in tension with everything else we know about Scripture. So, like, there's a big picture going on here. We're just focusing on Ecclesiastes. Just want to give you that hope. (laughs) In my research, one scholar said, it is the duty of human beings to receive God's gifts gratefully and to enjoy them. It is the will of God that we should enjoy our life, pitching our tents in an oasis of peace and happiness in the middle of a desert of absurdity. Finding peace through accepting God's gifts can lead to happiness, but only when we uh, experience them in relation to our perception of life as Habel. And this is the tension in, in Ecclesiastes. Bad things happen to good people, even though some people are godly and some are evil. Ecclesiastes says that the evil are buried with honor, even though people know they're evil, and while, while good people are treated like they're evil. So I'm evil, Yasmin knows I'm evil, she buries me with honor, which is a big deal back in, in that day, and everybody knows, and it's an injustice, and it's like, why did this happen? Whereas Dustin, who is very good, is treated like he's evil. It's this injustice, this, and it should conf- offend us and confront us, which should, we should know that it's wrong, but it's this wrestling with this tension in life that, you know, good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Ecclesiastes also addresses the inevitability of death, 10 points to me for saying that word, and the injustice that everyone suffers the same fate, and so Kohelet concludes with the advice to enjoy life anyway. No matter what injustice or evil Kohelet observes, his conclusion is always the same, and it's to enjoy life. Robert Alter, a very famous Hebrew scholar, says this exhortation to enjoy follows logically from the somber meditation 
on death's inexorability that has proceeded. Ten points to me again. If the same grim fate awaits us all, we are all well advised to take advantage of the pleasures of this life while we have them. So for me, the hope of enjoyment is to not separate enjoying life and habel. It's actually the single strand of reality that there is pain and suffering and evil and death and injustice everywhere in my own mind, but also externally in the world, but still joy can exist, still I can enjoy my life. It doesn't have to overwhelm me. I don't have to succumb to the lies in my brain. And joy outside of this perception and understanding of Habel just doesn't exist because if it does exist, it is also Habel. It's nothing, it's fleeting, it's futile, it's frustrating, it's unreal. So Kohelet ends Ecclesiastes with the reminder of God as creator that he is not to be forgotten. And while you enjoy the sunlight, remember God who created it. As one uh, ages toward the end of their life, Kohelet encourages them to remember God. And he concludes in uh, Ecclesiastes 12 that everything is meaningless, but in remembering God, remembering Habel, the years of your life can be enjoyed in conjunction with the truth of the vanity of life and the reality of God as the giver of true enjoyment. The reality of old age and death should prompt humanity to live while they are alive. And remembering God helps us to remember God's activities in the world and his activities in you know, your life and my life, which gives us encouragement and hope to go on. This is why I'm sharing my story with you. I don't want to just like, lay my life out there for you just because you know, I want everyone to know I was so sad. I want it to spur you and encourage you with hope to go on. Because when we forget God, we forget why things are meaningful. And one additional verse is the last one I'm going to share that I would argue also belongs in this camp of enjoyment in Ecclesiastes, is Ecclesiastes 7.3, which in the NLT says, sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. And there's a whole bunch of other translations that we could look at, and none of them say the same thing. Like, they all say sorrow is better than laughter, but the concluding sentence that, had, like, no one agrees on what it should say. And I read it in a whole bunch of different ones, but the NLT just really struck me for sadness has a refining influence on us. And when I read that for my class, it was like all of a sudden, like my sorrow, my pain, my mental illness, it finally had purpose. And its purpose was to refine me towards God's purposes. I didn't have to have this depression as some ugly, bleak thing, part of my life that I was just, you know, destined to deal with and wrestle with until the day I die. Actually, God gives it purpose and I can allow my sadness to refine me to enjoying life. I can allow sadness to influence me to God. Make sense? So this is how we enjoy life. We don't ignore pain or the realities of evil, but we remember God, and we remember it's good to enjoy food, to enjoy drink, to enjoy the fruit of hard work, to enjoy doing good, to enjoy wealth, to enjoy health if you are blessed with it. If God gives you those things, you're meant to enjoy them. It's good to enjoy your spouse. It's good to enjoy seeing the sun. It's good to enjoy your old age and your youth. And of course, in Ecclesiastes, there's lots everywhere that you know is just not enjoyable, but these, uh, these means of enjoyment stand out as ways that God saves us from drowning in our own despair. So there's no dichotomy or pessimism, uh, or of pessimism or optimism, but rather there's only the reality in Ecclesiastes that true enjoyment can only be understood and experienced in, one, in one's relation to, of understanding to Habel. Make sense? You have to understand Habel in order to understand the true enjoyment that God gives. 
So let's take you back to my class in June. I've had my one-on-one -on -one conversation with my professor, and uh, I'm writing the end of course exam. He you know, graciously allowed me to write it a day early. And it's really just a reflection of the course and its content. So I'm you know, writing and writing and writing. And I don't know how long I was writing, but I was just sitting there you know, in our spare room at my desk, and I had a vision. And it was a vision of me. I was in a car, and I was stopped at a traffic light, a red traffic light. And I don't know how long I'd been stopped there, but I felt that I'd been stopped there for a long time. All of a sudden, in my vision, the light turned green, and I felt God physically, like, I don't want to sound too mystical for you this morning, but like, it was just, I was having this moment with God, and I felt God push my spirit, like, actually out of my despair, and, and moved it forward. And so the, green, the light turned green, I'm pushed forward, and God said to me, go and enjoy your life again. And so immediately I got up, didn't even finish my exam, I finished it later, but I got up, I went straight into Ethan's arms, and I started crying, and I shared it with Yasmin the next day. And so the last, you know, three months, I've been focusing all of my energy on intentionally enjoying the life that God has given me. And the life that God has given me is, you know, wrapped up with mental illness. It's just my reality. I have depression. I don't have to, you know, struggle with it forever. I'm sure God's going to take me through different seasons, but what this season has taught me is that I can lean into my pain and, and still focus my energies on enjoying life because when we enjoy the life that God has given us, we enjoy him. This is what I was saying earlier. You know, rejoicing in all circumstances and, you know, the joy of the Lord, it doesn't have to be this, like, super spiritual experience. It doesn't have to be this, like, burden on you to, like, force yourself to be happy because God says to rejoice. It's actually just this really simple experience of just, as Yasmin said earlier, being with God and enjoying the things that he has orchestrated us to enjoy. And it's not a good enough reason to not enjoy your life because you have suffering, because there is suffering in the world, because there is cruel realities. The world is not a nice place all the time. We know that from scripture. There is spiritual warfare. There are things happening that we don't understand. There's opposition to God's purposes, and yet we're part of something that is greater. We don't succumb to the illusion of the house of mirth in Ecclesiastes 7.4, which literally means the, the house of laughter. I mean, that sounds pretty good, but it's not because it's an illusion. It's also part of Habel. There is no enjoyment outside of God's purposes. So how does this apply to us? How does what we've learned about what God says in Ecclesiastes aid us in our journey towards Christ-likeness and a godly culture here at the Neighborhood Church? First, we allow sadness and sorrow and grief and lament to have its refining influence on us. Before we get to culture, we need to address our pain. And you might be sitting here today and you're like, I'm feeling pretty good. And like, that is amazing. God has blessed you. And if you're sitting here and you're like, you know, Alyssa, I actually have quite a lot of pain. I'm going to tell you today to let it have its refining influence on you. Don't sweep things under the rug and act like everything is fine because everything is not fine. But enjoying God and enjoying your life means embracing your pain and embracing the cruel realities of this world. It's the mark of the wise and a mark of the godly to wrestle with this tension. And we can't fight the corruption of the world with our emotions, though we should fight corruption where we can. But we can allow sadness to have its refining influence on us to make us more conscious, considerate, and wise people who pitch their tents in an oasis of peace and happiness in the middle of a desert of absurdity. This pandemic is absurd. Life can be absurd. And yet we're still given the opportunity by God, orchestrated by God, to pitch our tents in an oasis of peace and happiness. And we can't do that by ignoring 
our pain. Two, we remember God, we remember our first love. Life without God is utterly meaningless. It's Habel. And we need to always wrestle with this because we are often confronted with the temptations and luxuries of this world that tell us, hey, that life looks pretty good and it doesn't include God. But it's actually an illusion and it's, it's invariably temporary. What we're a part of today is not temporary. God's promises and purposes will stand true forever. So we remember God and we remember our first love. And I'm not saying it's like bad to enjoy good things or to enjoy luxuries or fancy things when God has given you those opportunities to enjoy them. And if he's blessed you with wealth and with health and all those things, like it is your God-given mandate to enjoy those things. But we, in it all, remember God. And three, we consciously and intentionally enjoy life as a way to enjoy God. When you eat your next meal, or take a sip of your next drink, or you do work that you enjoy, whether it's your job or a hobby, or you look into the eyes of your spouse, or you enjoy the warmth of the sun, which we will not enjoy for many months to come, but whatever, or you enjoy the masterpiece of the next sunset, or just the beauty of nature, or you enjoy the age of your years, or the energy of your youth, we do it all to the glory of God, because when we enjoy our life, we enjoy Him. We're mindful. And we'll praise God that each of these things listed in Ecclesiastes is a lifeline that helps us navigate the toils and hardships and evils and injustices of this world because it's the mark of the spiritually mature, it's a mark of the spiritually mature to be mindful, to enjoy the things that God has orchestrated to us to, en to enjoy and to pitch our tents in that oasis of peace and happiness. And we give credit where credit is due, and that's to God, because we cannot enjoy anything apart from Him. And that's the single strand of reality that I'm telling you is the only true reality. You don't enjoy anything apart from Him. And when we do enjoy things apart from Him, it's an illusion. It's that house of mirth in Ecclesiastes 7.4. It's invariably temporary. And I'm not saying that what we enjoy is not the same as what other people enjoy. Like, that's not what I'm saying. It's this just illusion that um, things without God are permanent and valuable and meaningful because it's not true. When we chase the wind, when we enjoy things um, as a means to themselves, as an end to themselves without God, it's a bell. So we enjoy God and enjoy our life for His glory and for His purposes. Because can you imagine with me what a church would be like, what our church would be like, when we have our tents pitched in this oasis of peace and happiness for everyone else to see, for everyone else who is like just overcome by their mental illness or overcome by their sorrows or just overcome by injustice, and yet they see the neighborhood church as a place where God has blessed them with peace and happiness, not because they're ignoring their pain or the realities of, of the world, but because they're living out their God-given mandate that life is still enjoyable anyway. I think that would be a, an amazing witness to people. And I want to be part of a church like that, and I know you do too. So we're going to worship together. We're going to ask for God's help with this because it takes time to do this. So if you want to stand with me, you can. You can also stay seated, but Ethan and his team are going to, are going to lead us in worship. And I want you to take this opportunity to examine yourself. Do you have pain that you're keeping at bay just so you don't succumb to the weight of it all? Have you forgotten to enjoy yourself in the midst of, of this pandemic? Is there anything in your life that you just feel too worried about or too concerned about that it's preventing you from communing with God because your anxieties are now a barrier? If so, I want you to take this opportunity as we worship 
to, to just live in deep surrender, to let yourself be in God's presence and to allow him to take care of you. God is trustworthy with your pain. He is trustworthy with your concerns. And he's also trustworthy with your well-being. I used to be so afraid that God was going to call me to this hard and awful life. And like, that's just not true. That's not scriptural. I'm not saying he's called you to a million dollars or anything like that, but I'm, I'm also saying he's trustworthy with your well-being. He's trustworthy with my depression. He's trustworthy with my life and my well-being. And so I want you to take this moment, like I said, to examine yourself, and I want you to be amazed this week. And I want you to tell me this week, if you see God orchestrate your steps in ways that you didn't expect him to orchestrate your steps as you surrender now, I want you to tell me about it because I fully expect and anticipate God to move in your life as you surrender to him. And maybe that means you'll find courage to call your doctor, to maybe talk to someone you haven't talked to but need to talk to. Maybe it'll give you courage to just cry a little bit more. Maybe it'll give you courage to pray. But whatever it is, let me know. I want to hear about it. So let's enjoy this time together in his presence. Let's enjoy God, but don't forget your pain. Don't forget your concerns because they're actually things that can refine us to his purposes.